we can't expect everybody who is living with disability to just get on the horse and keep riding the, you know, get on the dragon and keep riding, you know, because that's not what's happening. Welcome to Psychocinematic, a podcast where we analyze depictions of mental illness and disability in popular films and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fornasia. If you love our podcast and want to give us some support, make sure you're following Psychocinematic Podcast on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And check out our website, psychocinematicpodcast.com. For access to special bonus content, episodes, early access, stickers, and contribute to our regular fundraisers, join our Patreon. Starting from $3.50 a month, you can be the coolest psychocinematic listener there is. I'd like to start the podcast today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm on today, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and future, and acknowledge that I am recording this podcast on stolen land. And I'd like to introduce my co-host today, Lo Nagrosh. Did I say that right? You did, yeah. Hooray. Welcome to the podcast, Lo. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, my name is Lo, and I'm also a podcaster, which is how we met. And I have been loving your show, so I've been eating it up. The most recent episode with Frozen was really fun. I loved your Tully episode. There's been so many in the archives that I've enjoyed. Oh, thank you. And you made me do some homework because it's been a <laughs> while since I have done my homework and acknowledged who the land that I live and work on originally belonged to and really still belongs to. And so I had to do some digging to look. I homeschool my kids. So this is something that we should be talking about way more frequently than we do. But um, it belongs to the Pequot people. Um, and they are a people from the Mashantucket tribe. And it's kind of hard to really tell in the little amount of research that I did because there's so many names for so many different people groups up here in the Northeast of the United States where we are. But that is, I believe, who was on the land where I live and work. Thank you so much. So thank you for um, making me do a little bit of that work. Yeah. <laughs> no problem at all. It's uh, also really nice to be able to do that as well. And and it's sometimes that information is very obvious and sometimes it's not. Um, in Australia, we're still very much, and I'm sure it's like that in the US, that it's, it's not always universal that people are acknowledging the, the land that they're on, um, but it's something that I'm very conscious of doing and not just giving it lip service. Um, so it's really awesome to hear what country you're on as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Now tell me a little bit about yourself as a fellow podcast host. Uh, your podcast I'm also extremely enjoying. Yeah, so I am a lactation consultant. I help people feed their babies who are struggling to do so. And so many people struggle to feed their babies because of systemic medical and cultural barriers. I think so many people go into becoming parents thinking, they think one of two things. They think breastfeeding or body feeding is going to be um, so hard because everybody in my life has told me horror stories. The same with childbirth, right? And so I'm going to give it a try, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And given 
all of the barriers that we face, that is a totally reasonable attitude to take when someone is about to have a baby because it's not fair how many barriers there are. And then there's another group of people who think, well, we have mammary glands. We are mammals. The milk comes. It should just be natural. And so I should just be able to feed my babies. And really, the answer is way more complicated than that, because anthropologically speaking, even if you look at other primates like chimps and gorillas, monkeys, apes, they know how to care for their babies and feed them in particular as a learned behavior, not as an instinctual behavior. And it is the same with human beings. And feeding our babies from our bodies has been disrupted over the last century and a half, really. And so it has become so challenging given how many barriers we face. And so my podcast, The Milk Making Minutes, both in my podcast and in my practice as a lactation consultant, what I do is help people discover how many barriers there were when they were trying to feed their babies. So people tell their stories. And then I use my professional lens to help them unpack that, whether that's explicitly in the moment or whether I kind of come in afterwards and name for my listeners what made that story so challenging. But we don't just share the challenging stories. We share both, both the triumphant ones and the ones that really highlight all the barriers that people face. Thank you very much for describing that. Um, I think it's a really... It's a very inclusive podcast and it's a really refreshing, non-judgmental, positive but realistic podcast to, you know, share all of those stories and and you know what what the science tells us and what history tells us. And it's really refreshing hearing that. Um, because as you just described, there's so many there's different views about feeding your your baby and there's lots of pressure from society to Mm -hmm. do it right and um, so many barriers just as you mentioned so it's um, really a must listen for anyone who's has a baby is planning on having children yeah anyone who's interested in that um, I really love it and I'm gonna be on it as well which I'm very excited about yes me too yeah and I think there's an intersection between mental health And what I do, because so many people suffer from mental illness in the postpartum or in the perinatal period, Mm -hmm. and that pressure that you describe and baby feeding, they are so interlinked with mental unwellness, I'm going to say. Mm, And, And that pressure starts with baby feeding sometimes, and then it doesn't let up. That's when Mm. those seeds of doubt creep in. So I might talk Mm. to somebody who had a baby 30 years ago. So my oldest guest had had her baby 60 plus years ago and she's in her 90s now. And um, it's interesting to see how long it takes people to sink into their confidence as a mother once it has been disrupted by this idea Mm. that their bodies failed them or that they're not doing it right. Mm. And so I'm here to disrupt that idea that you failed or your body failed, but rather you were failed. If it didn't go the way it was supposed to, there was some break in the link of 
of mm-hmm. of the system and and it wasn't your fault and however you needed to get through that period you did the best you could and you took each right next step as it came I love that yeah yeah that's brilliant um yeah looking forward to talking more of more of my experience on the podcast um and I do wish that we had uh, waited to talk about Tully because that was your first um, suggestion that we talk about um, today. But we covered that one very early on in the podcast, still during COVID lockdown, and it was definitely something on my mind. Um, but for people who don't know, Tully is a, a movie um, charting the, I guess, postpartum period for uh, Charlie Theron's character. And it, yeah, definitely shares some of the themes that uh, of postpartum mental illness, and yeah, the the struggle of being a parenting a newborn. So, in another life, maybe we would have done that <laughs> that movie today. Well, I don't think I could have done any better than you did. You really, but was it your husband that was? Yes, yes, yeah, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think you both, you you really were able to talk about that movie and bring the juxtaposition of both, yes, there's a light being shown on this issue, and there's something a little off about it (laughs) that many people who have experienced (laughs) perinatal mental illness or perinatal, just anyone who has had a baby, really, and has Mm -hmm. struggled during that time with an unsupportive partner or whatever, feels that offness about it. So I think you you really did a great job with it. I don't think I could have done any better. And I'm very excited to talk about the movie we're going to talk about because it relates very closely to my own life because I am disabled. I have a disability. I wear a prosthetic leg. I didn't mention that in my intro. I guess I should have. <laughs> um, I was a Paralympic athlete in 2004, 2003 through 2006, went to Athens in 2004. And so this movie really um, has a special place in my heart. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you for that positive feedback. Uh, So we're doing How to Train Your Dragon, which I didn't know anything about until you mentioned it. Before we go into the actual film, um, what was your uh, sport that you participated in in the Paralympics in Athens? I played sitting volleyball. So I was part of the first uh, women's sitting volleyball team in the United States. So you might know that each Paralympic Games, a new sport gets added. And so in 2004, women's sitting volleyball was being added to the Paralympic Games. And so they were looking for the U.S. did not even have a women's sitting team before that. So they were looking for athletes to join the team. And I had had a prosthetic my whole life and was not interested in disabled sports. I had always played able-bodied sports. I had never even used the word disabled to describe myself. It was, I never had this disabled placard. I did not grow up in a time where there was as much, I was born in the eighties. I'm 42 now. And so my parents, I think they did a very good job with me with the information that they had. However, there was not this awareness that identity as a disabled person could impact you in some way. Mm. And so it was just not something we joked about it. You know, it was not something we had to stray away from as a topic, but there were also not discussions about how disability impacted me mm-hmm. being different from other people. Was that a conscious thing? Was it a way to sort of normalize it for you? Or was it sort of like, we just don't want to talk about it? I 
think it was a little bit of both. I definitely think they made very conscious decisions not to make me any different than my siblings. Mm -hmm. And so I had the same chores. You know, I did the same sports. We were very active and adventurous people. And so in many ways, that really paid off. Mm. Um, And then in other ways, I think it would have been nice to have conversations about how disability impacts a person. And I didn't even start to process that until I was in my 30s. I did it a little bit as a Paralympian when I was surrounded by so many other disabled people. But it wasn't as conscious until I was in my 30s. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, I am disabled. And this is how being disabled impacts me. So somebody approached me, my prosthetist at the time approached me and said they were looking for athletes to start a new team. And I was like, I don't even play volleyball. And they said Mm -hmm. they're not looking for volleyball players. They're just looking for athletes. So I went to a tryout. I didn't, I wasn't interested at all. I was like, I don't do disabled sports. I was uh, 20, I think, or 21. And he said, just try it. Just go to a tryout. I won't pressure you if after you go to a tryout you don't like it, but you don't know what you're rejecting. I didn't understand the Paralympics at the time. And Mm. so I went to a tryout after the first day of training. I couldn't even sit. And I realized this is a real sport. This is so challenging. And the, the coach at the time said to me, well, you're not a volleyball player, but you are an athlete. And it's my job to make you a volleyball player and you continue to be an athlete. And I made the team and we uh, qualified for the Paralympics and we won a bronze medal in 2004. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. That's so interesting that it's sort of the sport that gets created um, in that circumstance anyway to to be part of the the Paralympics. I I didn't realize that that's sort of the process that, that you go through and like seeking athletes rather than people might be already playing that sport. It's not always, but because it was sort of an unusual sport, sitting volleyball Mm. on the court, it depends on the sports federation, like wheelchair basketball, there are wheelchair basketball leagues Mm. at the elementary level, at the college level, at the pro level. And so it's very easy to recruit wheelchair Mm. athletes, but there are just not sitting volleyball leagues and there are not disabled leagues. So it's much harder to recruit athletes. Hopefully there's a lot more now. There are not actually. There's still, it has been almost 20 years Mm. and there are not sitting volleyball leagues. And I find this to be a top down problem. Do you, there's still, are you in a league since then? No. Mm. Yeah. So they still look for disabled athletes amongst able-bodied players. They have not developed leagues. That's that's quite disappointing given... It really is. And that's in yeah. the US. Now, in the Netherlands, in Iran, in China, they do have very robust leagues where even able-bodied people play because there is no specialized equipment needed for sitting volleyball. So they mm. have had leagues all across those countries for a long time, and those are very robust uh, national level teams as well, Mm. where the competition is quite fierce. But in the US, we have just not put a lot of attention into disabled volleyball. Mm -hmm. 
Are you pregnant and thinking about what making milk for your baby will be like? Do you wonder why feeding human babies human milk has become so challenging? I'm Lo Nigrosh, a lactation consultant and host of the Milk Making Minutes, a podcast that explores baby feeding through the lens of systemic and cultural barriers. Come listen to others share their insight about their own milk making experiences and empower yourself to feed your own babies in the way that feels best for you. Are you happy for us to get into how to train your dragon? Yes. I'm so excited. Yes. How did you come across this film? With my kids. Yeah. So my kids are nine and five. I don't know when the movies came out, but they, I think the first time I saw them, the YMCA was showing one of the films for a community event. And are you familiar with YMCA? I, I know of, yeah, YMCA. We have a few in Oh, yeah. Australia, YMCA. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, yeah. So it's just, uh, you know, a place where people work out and sometimes they'll do community events. So they were showing how to train your dragon and allowing kids to create their own stuffy dragon. And so we went to this and I think they show they were showing the second one. It must have recently come out then. Well, that was 2014. I just, I just Googled it because I forgot to actually check that. Okay. Um, and the first okay. one was 2010, I believe. Okay. So this was probably like 20. 18 is my guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's how I first got exposed. And I was like, wow, this movie is awesome. And there are so many prosthetics in it. You know, anytime I see prosthetics in media, books, movies, I'm always pointing it out to my kids, having a conversation with them about the representation. What did they think of it? And so it was really cool for me to just be kind of blindsided by all the prosthetics in this movie. Yeah, I I absolutely Loved it. Um, and like I said, I hadn't, didn't know anything about it really. And I've, you know, seen them around, um, but had never watched them. So in preparation for today, I s- sat with my son Casper and we watched the first one and he absolutely loved it mm. and then was happy to watch the second one with me as well. And since then has not stopped talking about Toothless and how Toothless is a dragon. And we went to a playground today where there was a dragon slide and he was just mm. you know, like enraptured with it. So it's his new favourite thing, which is great because it's nice to have a bit of variety as well because he tends <laughs> yes. to like the same things over and over again, as of toddlers tend to do. So it's a, a new part of our lives, which is amazing. I'm so happy. <laughs> Yes, yes. The movies really are good. I hadn't seen them in a while and I was really happy to watch them again. Fantastic. I might quickly go through the plot, which I've taken from Mm -hmm. Wikipedia because they they do a good summarized plot. I'll try and be brief, but sometimes it's a bit tricky. And I'll just sort of explain um, the second movie's sort of themes, but I won't go into the plot for that. Otherwise, we'll be here all night. So the Viking village of Burke is frequently attacked by dragons, which steal livestock and endanger the villagers. Hiccup, the awkward 15-year-old son of the village chieftain, Stoic the Vast, is deemed too weak to fight the dragons. Instead, he creates mechanical devices under his apprenticeship with Gobba, the village blacksmith, though Hiccup's adventures often backfire. Hiccup uses a bolus launcher to shoot down a night fury, a rare and dangerous dragon, but cannot bring himself to kill the creature and sets him free. Before leaving with his fleet to find and destroy the dragon's nest, 
Stoic enters Hiccup in a dragon fighting class taught by Gobber with fellow teenagers Fishlegs, Snotlout, twins Roughnut and Toughnut, and Astrid, on whom Hiccup has a crush. Failing in training, Hiccup returns to the forest and finds the Night Fury trapped in a cove, unable to fly because Hiccup's bolus tore off half his tail fin. Hiccup gradually befriends the dragon, naming him Toothless after his retractable teeth, and designs a harness and prosthetic fin, allowing Toothless to fly with Hiccup riding him. By learning dragon behavior from Toothless, Hiccup is able to subdue the captive dragons during training, earning admiration from his peers, but suspicion from Astrid. Hiccup is judged the winner of his training class and must kill a dragon for his final exam. He tries to run away with Toothless, but Astrid ambushes them in the forest and discovers the dragon. Hiccup takes Astrid for a sunset flight to demonstrate that Toothless is friendly, but Toothless is hypnotically drawn to the dragon's nest. There, a gargantuan dragon named the Red Death summons the smaller dragons to feed it live food to avoid being eaten themselves. Realising the dragons have been forced to attack Burke to survive, Astrid wants to tell the village, but Hiccup advises against it to protect Toothless. In his final exam, Hiccup faces a captive monstrous nightmare dragon and tries to subdue him to prove that dragons can be peaceful. When Stoic inadvertently angers the dragon into attacking, Toothless escapes the cove to protect Hiccup, but is captured by the Vikings. After Hiccup accidentally reveals that Toothless knows the location of the dragon's nest, Stoic ignores his son's warnings about the Red Death and disowns him, which is really sad, setting off for the nest with Toothless chained to the lead ship as a guide. Hiccup is devastated, but Astrid prompts him to realise that he spared Toothless out of compassion, not weakness. Regaining his confidence, Hiccup shows Astrid and their friends how to befriend the training dragons and they set out after Toothless. Stoic and his Vikings locate and break open the dragon's nest, awaking the Red Death which soon overwhelms them. Hiccup, Astrid, and their friends fly in on the training dragons, distracting the Red Death. Hiccup attempts to free Toothless from the damaged ship. The two nearly drown, but Stoic rescues them and reconciles with his son. Toothless and Hiccup damage the Red Death's wings before luring it into a dive and firing a fireball down its throat, killing it. In the explosion, Toothless shields Hiccup, but Hiccup loses his lower left leg and faints. Awakening some time later, Hiccup finds that Gobba has fashioned him a prosthetic and he is now admired by his village, including Astrid, who kisses him. Burke begins a new era of humans and dragons living in harmony. And then just uh, the second film, How to Train Your Dragon 2, is sort of catches up five years after those incidents and the dragons and the villagers of Burke are living together in harmony. The villagers made adaptations and adjustments for the dragons to coexist together with the town folk hiccups being pressured by his father to become the chief which he's not sure about and there's a villain called drago or drago who's a dragon master who's who uses fear to control the dragons and in the past um tried to offer protection to all the chieftains but if they pledged to serve him but when they laughed it off as a joke he had his dragons attack everyone and stoic was the only one who survived hiccup also meets his mother who ran away after um, she she wanted to befriend dragons and so she ran away from, from Burke and she's now become a dragon rescuer. Valka is her name, played by Kate Blanchett, an Australian. And Stoic is sadly killed in battle where there's a battle between sort of the Drago's Bewilderbeast, which is like an alpha dragon, and the one that um, Valka has been protecting. And it's very much about protecting the society that they have built and um, maintaining um, the, the dragon culture and allowing them to thrive. Um, really that good versus evil and 
controlling with fear versus controlling with love and compassion. So yeah, that's a bit of a summary of the of the two movies. There are more in the series, but we'll be here all night. <laughs> Usually what we do at this point is talk about the lived experience of the people creating the film and anyone who's in the film. Is there anything that you came across in terms of lived experience of people involved in the making of this film? I did not look that up. So I am excited to hear what you uncovered. I saw that you, I've heard you do this on your podcast and I saw that you looked it up and I just did not have the time to do that. So I'm really That's excited. Fine. That's to why I do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm really excited to hear what you uncovered. Well, I was interested to hear um, because it was based on, it's based on a book or a series of books by Cressida Cowell, um, who is an English author. And I assumed that disability was a theme in the novels, and I haven't read the novels, but um, it doesn't seem like it was. It seems like that was an addition to the films. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I was surprised by. And I think it really makes the films what they are as well. There's lots of lots of themes in it which are great, but it's a very defining part for me. So I was a bit disappointed, to be honest. But having said that, she um, definitely has some lived experience around some of the themes in the movie. Um, She did say that firstly the Viking themes in it, she grew up visiting an island off the coast of Scotland where there was a lot of Viking ruins and she became really into that, so that makes sense. But she also said she began writing How to Train Your Dragon, the first book, after her first child had been born and says that it could have been titled How to Train Your Child because she was sort of like it's all about being a parent. Which is very relevant oh, to wow. us. wow. <laughs> you know, that's so interesting. I think as parents, we think that our children are these beings that we can just force them to do what we want them to do. But if mm. you think of them as their own creatures, like the dra- dragons, we could be like Draco. But is that relationship going to turn out very good in the end? Probably not. But if we're more like Hiccup in our approach building a relationship and learning what makes them tick, we're probably in the end, in the long game, going to have a great relationship with them that lasts for a really long time. hundred percent. Definitely that sort of controlling versus and deciding what happens, that sort of punitive approach versus taking the child's lead and going with them or like that. I love that scene. And I've watched it again today because Casper wanted to watch it where Hiccup starting to figure out like what is safe for Toothless and what doesn't feel safe um, by, you know, um, having the knife and then throwing the knife away and things like that. And then he puts his hand out and like doesn't give him eye contact and then waits for uh, Toothless to sort of meet him, he meet his hand to actually touch each other. And that, that was just such a perfect example of like a bit of a dance that you have with picking up on your child's cues and also um, them picking up on your cues, I guess. So yes, great. And also the fact that Stoic is kind of learns his parenting, like his parenting style changes. Uh, well, it doesn't completely mm. change, but it it goes from this is the way you have to be, and you're you're not living up to this standard, so you're weak. Hiccup. But th- there's no. This is the way you're. You've got to eventually sort of meet those expectations to being sort of led by his son as to how you know dragons and 
and how they can actually be integrated into society and sort of letting him take the lead. Yeah, that's really fascinating. If you if you think about the whole I haven't read the books, but if you think about the whole movies through that lens, there's so much to glean there. Like that could yeah. be its own podcast in and of itself. Absolutely. So yeah, she sort of talks about how she um wanted the books to be about relationships and how being a parent teaches empathy. And she has a lot of, she says some really nice things about kids and that, you know, children don't need to have things dumbed, quote unquote, down for them. And it's a really important thing to therefore be honest and actually use those huge themes in a way that is, you know, exciting and um, entertaining for kids. She also mentioned that she always wanted to be an author, but her handwriting and her spelling was really bad. So she thought that she couldn't be an author because because of those reasons. And she wanted to share the message with kids. It's not about your handwriting and your spelling. It's about your ideas. So she says that she doesn't want a kid who has difficulty with the mechanics of reading or writing to think that that's not what being a writer is about. It's all about your ideas and your imagination, which I, I wanted to mention because it's you know, for some kids who do have learning difficulties, um, that might be something she relates to and how it's, you know, having those difficulties doesn't mean you can't, you know, fulfill your dreams and create amazing stuff. Yes. I was an educator for 10 years in um, traditional schools and now I homeschool my two kids and I do things totally differently now than I did Mm. when I was in schools because I was, just doing what I was told to do. But now that I've opened my mind to other ways of approaching things, like my son, he hates putting pencil to paper, but he loves, he has really great ideas. So if he has a great idea for a story, I don't want him to miss out on that experience of creating something. So I'll say, hey, I'll type this up for you or I'll write it down for you. Mm. So we can practice the mechanics later at another time, but I don't want the the frustration with the mechanics to get in the way Mm. of him recognizing that he has great ideas that we can put to paper. hundred percent. A big part of my main role at work is promoting, making adjustments in schools um, for kids with disabilities or with complex needs. And what I also love about this movie is it's a description of how to make adjustments in a society so that you're being inclusive of all different levels of ability and all different, ensuring that there aren't the barriers there that there often are so that everyone can participate in that world on the same basis as everybody else. Oh my gosh. And that's a great description um, that she's, that you've just mentioned there of taking away some of the, the barriers so that you can access that awesome, that skill that someone has. Right. And if we think about where society is going with AI and, you know, texting and, you know, I think as educators, we often get stuck in thinking that kids need to do things a certain way instead of recognizing Mm. all the tools that kids have to get their ideas out. And I love that you're bringing this up, that the movie has so many examples of barriers Mm. being taken away so that more mm-hmm. people can participate. I wish I'd thought to look at it in that lens too, because now I'm I'm thinking, oh, I want to go back and think of examples, but. Oh, I'm sure we'll, we'll think of them as we, as we go through. And that's often on my mind. So that's why I was like, oh, that's Great. an adjustment. <laughs> uh-huh. But I might move on to the other people involved in the film. So there were 
the screenwriters and producers, William Davies, Chris Sanders, um, who was the voice of Stitch from Lilo and Stitch, so that's good to know, and he created the character, and Dean Dubois. It seems like the focus on prosthesis and and having limb differences was really Dean Dubois doing. So apparently when they were looking at the film and adapting it from the book, um, he mentions that for all the peril and consequence we had introduced into their world, we felt like our hero was getting away unscathed and without having really sacrificed anything. So we decided to integrate this idea that he'd lost a limb and we felt confident doing it, knowing we had this Craig Ferguson character, which is Gobba, uh, with a couple of missing limbs. So there would be precedent in our world. He also, I like this, he liked the idea that the use of a forged metal lower leg helped deepen the symbiotic relationship between Hiccup and his dragon. And and the fact that when Hiccup captures Toothless, that damages his dragon's tail, which led Hiccup to engineer that prosthetic fin. And so Dean Dubois says, it's a loss that linked the two of them narratively emotionally and even physically because then when flying hiccup uses a stirrup which attaches the dragon's mechanical tail and apparently they tested it with an audience and they really loved it and they really wanted it to be in the in the in the final film knowing that what what are your thoughts on how that sort of was integrated into the film yeah so I had a discussion I sat down at dinner last night with my family And we talked about the themes we saw related to disability in the films. My kids are nine and five. And my husband actually is my prosthetist. He's a, he's uh, works in prosthetics and orthotics. So he became a prosthetist. I know he became a certified (laughs) prosthetist and orthotist after we met, he went back to school. And so he is, he lives in this world all day, every day. And so I was really interested in his thoughts, too, about the film and how it portrayed disability and prosthetics specifically. And so I asked my family, so just the general question, first of all, how do you think it portrayed disability? And then secondly, what do you think about the idea that there were so many people with disabilities And one of the things that got brought up was this relationship between Toothless and Hiccup and that they, they really, I think it was my husband that brought it up, that it was the disability that brought them together initially and that it was Hiccup that caused the disability, but then it was also the disability that allowed them to forge a relationship and to essentially it it created sort of this dependence between hiccup and toothless toothless could not now not fly without hiccup and so hiccup created this prosthetic limb and so it kind of showed that there was this dependence and not every disabled person is dependent on somebody else for their care. And I don't think the movie shows that. But in this case, in order for Hiccup to be a dragon, at least initially, he did need Hiccup to fly and Hiccup mm. forged that. And then that's what allowed them to have the relationship that then changed the entire relationship between all of the village and all of the dragons. Mm. So that was sort of an interesting point that the disability of the dragon was what really 
change the course of everybody's life. Yeah, yeah. So was that sort of seen as a, a positive for your family in, in, in that depiction or was it was there some? Yeah, I think it's positively depicted, but it has the idea of it has some nuance, right? That yeah, yeah. He would not have been disabled had he not been shot down. Um, and my son, who's nine, when I asked, what did you think of this idea that so many people were disabled? He he said, I think it depicts that they were in a time of war. Oh. And this is not something that I had considered, but it is so true that they had been warring for a long time against the dragons. Mm. And he said, and in times of war, people often get injured at higher rates, which is very Mm. true. In 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 Mm. the time of post 9-11, when the wars in when the war in Afghanistan has been going on for so long, I have met so many disabled athletes who have receive their disabilities as a result of serving in in the Middle East. And so in times of war, we know that there is an uptick in, yeah. in disabilities. And so it was very interesting that my son was the one who pointed this out, that yes, when you have two groups that are warring, there are going to be a higher, there, there are much higher representations of people who are disabled because they're going to have injuries from that warring. Yeah, very good point. I can't believe we didn't think of that. Um, I know. Yeah, because I was kind of like, does it become a little overdone when you see so many disabled people in the movie? And I really, I really thought that um, he that this idea that no, it really shows how much they've been struggling for Mm. so many years. And I feel like it in the way that it depicts that it's not like they don't seem bothered by that. Like it's, it's a very, it's a world where that's expected and it's, it's no one's seen any lesser by having, you know, having a disability as a result of the struggles that have happened. Right. They continue with their duties, whether they're a warrior (laughs) or yeah. And then the, what, who's the the bad guy in the end of the second movie? Groke? No. The Dra- Drago or Drago? Yes. And the surprise at the end is mm. that he also has lost his arm. And the the theme that my husband pointed out was that sometimes you can receive a disability or you can end up disabled and that can eat at you. Mm, mm. And he has been blaming the dragons for this disability for so long and he he directly points to his arm you know he takes off his prosthetic and Mm. and shows his stump and says you know I've been injured and it's now my life's work to control these dragons as a result whereas other people in the movies were able to like recognize their role in warring with the dragons and to see that it wasn't necessarily the dragon's fault mm. that they had been injured by them and to kind of move on from their injuries, but he was not able to for whatever reason. Yeah. I, I like his inclusion because it's almost like so, well, I guess we get to stereotypes soon, but that's, that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> like there's so many tropes around 
villains having a disability. Like most Disney villains have some sort of disability in some way, like Scar in The Lion King has a you know, facial difference with a scar on his face, Captain Hook, etc. So having that inclusion and being like, it's not the disability that makes him a villain. It's how he's choosing to be in this world, essentially, which is different from the hero, etc. Because the hero has a disability too. And the fact that it's not, I guess, that response being to um, try to control and see with with hate, like, I guess, act with hatred and fear towards the thing that has caused the disability. Whereas if society is actually the thing and the community is the thing that change so that it's it's inclusive and accepting of the disability to reduce the barriers of the disability, then there's no need to well, apart from the fact Drago obviously had some issues, <laughs> there's no need to have so much fear and hatred and um, and let that drag you down, I guess. But in an ideal right. world, that's how that would that's that's how the response to disability would be. Right. But you can see how in a world like ours, <laughs> where there is so little acceptance of disability mm-hmm. or so many barriers to living in a world with disability, that that bitterness can start to well up. Now, I happen to have a disability that at this stage in my life is pretty minimal. I think as I get older, it might become more and more difficult. But to this point in my life from birth till 42, um, I've been pretty lucky. And I have not had a lot of mobility challenges. And I'm able to get into any space I want to get into, but that is not the case for all people with disabilities. Mm. And, you know, so in a world where people with disabilities are not considered and they're constantly having to fight for their right to be included in a space, it, it is perfectly understandable when that bitterness starts to, to take hold. Um, So I don't want anyone to think that I am thinking, oh, I have a, that I'm saying I have a disability and it's been really easy for me to just have a positive outlook and move on with life because that's not, you know, that's kind of portrayed in the movie a little bit and and, and it's simplified. It's a cartoon, right? Yeah, Um, exactly. And in the world of, of Hiccup, everybody did listen to him and adapt, but that is not what is happening currently in modern day society when it comes to disabilities. So we can't expect everybody who is living with disability to just get on the horse and keep riding the, you know, get on the dragon and keep riding, you know, because that's not what's happening. Exactly. So I don't want anyone to think that I am downplaying any sort of bitterness or feelings of frustration that people with disabilities might have. And I think that the danger of the character of Drago is that it might be saying to anyone who is struggling with their disability, having um, a difficulties accepting and coming to terms with it and also maybe feeling some negative feelings around it, that that's a villainous trait and you shouldn't be that way. Like that, I guess right. people might see it that way and interpret it that way, which is um, completely fair that I think that's a valid criticism uh, of having a a villain with the disability as well. I think it's done better than other films and I think the fact that so many characters are disabled, that's not the defining feature of the villain, but that mentality could be um, not quite a positive or a helpful message to people. 
Yes. And I also think that it's, it's great that all the people who have disabilities are still quite athletic. Mm. They're strong. They are contributing to society in the way that they think is best. So even Draco, he's strong. He's the leader, you know, Mm -hmm. Captain Hook is too, but he's also kind of just this like goofy guy who you don't even see why anybody's following him. Whereas Draco, you can see why people are, are following him. He's, he's strong. He has something to say. He, he's accumulated this power. He is controlling the dragons. And so even though he's not the type of leader that I would want, you can, he is still a leader. And Mm. so the disability has not has not detracted from his ability to be a leader and a strong person, both physically and personality wise. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important as well that his disability doesn't give him the power. Like that's mm-hmm. it's a separate thing from his ability to control and lead. Yeah, you wouldn't have even known it was there if he didn't take off his prosthesis. I kind of want to talk more on the, along these lines, but I'll just um, finish up with a couple of the performers involved and their lived experience. Oh, yeah. None of the voice actors in the movie had uh, or identified as having a disability of any kind. However, a few of them do have mental health issues. Jay Baruchel, who voices Hiccup, has generalised anxiety disorder, like me, which was interesting and I guess he relates to the character of Hiccup in that um, he was talking to, I think it was Entertainment Tonight, that he, when he was younger, he um, if he could tell his younger self anything, it would be that you are not alone and that you're not the only kid feeling this and know that anxiety, for better or worse, is part of what makes you you. And he wouldn't trade who he is uh, for anything in the world. So I think that's, you know, resonates with the character of Hiccup and that he's not like all the other Vikings, but it makes him him. And that's, uh, uh, they're all really good traits and he's just as important as the other, um, people in Burke. So yeah, I just thought that was good. Yeah. You know, I also struggle with anxiety that I am so happy to take medication for because it really helps. And my son in particular (laughs) struggles with anxiety. And I try to help normalize this for him in much the same way that Jay is saying, like, you are not Mm -hmm. the only one. And just because you have a thought doesn't mean that it's reality. And so I love that he says that this is what he would tell his younger self. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, you were not the only kid who's feeling this way. A lovely sentiment. And I think it, it sort of makes sense that he's, you know, playing a character who um, experiences some of that feeling it different from everybody else. And um, you know, that sense of not fitting in and, but also not wanting to change himself or anything. Also relevant uh, to our interests, America Ferreira, who voices Astrid, had severe anxiety in her third trimester of her second pregnancy during COVID, um, Mm. which caused her a lot of sleeping problems uh, and she really struggled and she had to sort of also given the time that it was, a lot of the news would really trigger her as well and she had to sort of just turn off her phone. Um, So she mentions that in an article 
But she also talked about how, you know, looking different and and having a lot of scrutiny as an actress. Uh, She mentioned we always think about things about ourselves as a problem, like that we need to fix our skin, weight, diet, even fashion. Uh, And recently she shifted and reframed her belief about herself. I'm whole, I'm strong, I'm healthy, and I'm enough. Mm. And she said she's had a history of injury and pain since she was a teenager and she finds the best way to transform her story around that physical trauma is to feel her strength. So, yeah, I didn't dig too deeply into America, but it sounds like she really relates to some of the experiences in the movie, but also just generally um, very relatable stuff for sure and I um I didn't know her by name either but I definitely know her by by looking at her her parents are Honduran which I didn't realize she was born in America and I I I find it interesting I know it was a Viking community but there had to have been um some diversity of color hair color skin tone in viking communities and i find it interesting Mm. that america ferrera looks honduran yet the character of astrid is blonde light-skinned and i know they're trying to portray a viking but i don't know i feel like they could have had a little more diversity there definitely agree they could have diversified it up a little bit I think in terms of body size and image, there, there was a bit of diversity there, but um, yes, yeah, that would have been nice to expand a little bit. And then we have also Jared Butler who plays Stoic and Craig Ferguson who played Gobba, both quite, I think, Scottish. I'm not sure about Gerard, but Craig is very Scottish. And both of them have had a history of alcoholism and Gerard Butler has had a history of addiction to painkillers, which he's been treated for. But I was interested in, I didn't know anything about Craig Ferguson, um, but he was one of the few people, this is just an aside, who when everyone was making jokes about Britney Spears um, during the time that she um, very publicly shaved her head in about 2004, I think, was one of the few people saying, let's not make jokes about this woman who's obviously going through a time um that's fantastic it makes me love him really really respect him for that because not many people were holding back and there's a clip on youtube of him like being very honest about like i went through um mental health issues i went through addiction issues and i know what that's like can we just stop making fun Mm -hmm. of it anyway (laughs) just Mm -hmm. love that yeah i think that's great But let's move on to how accurate the portrayal is. Given that this is a fantastical film, uh, obviously this yes. is not very, there's, everything is very inaccurate because it's a fantasy sort of piece. But I was interested in what you thought about the depiction of prostheses and making those adjustments to reduce those barriers because the way, like you mentioned, with the, the dependence between hiccup and toothless, I also saw that as an example of interdependence, where I guess dependence on a mobility device or a prosthesis is a way to help you access the world, but it's not being completely independent, but it gives you independence, if that makes sense. So I don't know if that's the right description of interdependence, but it's it sort of, to me, sort of shows that throughout a lot of the use of 
the themes in the film. Yeah. So I um, actually had a great conversation with my husband about the accuracy because I wanted to know his take uh, based on his knowledge of historical uses of prosthetics. So I asked mm-hmm. him what he knew about the use of prosthetics in that time, knowing that it's a cartoon and it doesn't really <laughs> matter. Um, but I was just curious. But my own take. So when I watched it, I thought a couple of things. I thought, first of all, when he showed when the the showing of Toothless's recovery and learning to use a prosthetic was really good. It showed this long stretch of time. It showed lots of trial and error. It showed not getting it right the first time. It showed going back to the drawing board multiple times. And I love movies that depict that especially when I'm watching them with my children, because I always point out, look, they didn't get it right the first time. They had to try Mm. and try again. Mm -hmm. And that is so true when it comes to prosthetics too. I've been wearing a prosthetic for uh, 41 years. And even now when I get a new prosthetic, it's never going to be right the first time. I always Mm -hmm. have to go back and get adjustments. Luckily now it all happens at my house because my husband just brings home the prosthetic equipment that's needed. But um, yeah, I know. But it takes multiple (laughs) attempts to get it right. So I thought that was good. Um, The thing that I thought was a little, so, you know, at the end of the first movie, Hiccup loses his leg and then you see him in bed. So you see that it has been a while. Mm. But then he stands up and he puts on a prosthetic and he just walks away. And that is not what it is like to learn to use a prosthetic. I have that um, well. <laughs> it's a bit harder than that. And I know that when you are um, producing a movie, you have to make cuts and there are, you know, decisions about timing. And this was not a movie about disability. So, but I just, when I saw that, I was like, well, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, I wish they would have shown the struggle a little bit more with him that you cannot just stand up and wear a prosthetic. But it's really a very small complaint in a movie that shows disability in a way that I feel very proud of. So Mm -hmm. uh, it was like my one, it was probably my biggest complaint of disability portrayal in the whole movie. (laughs) I I thought that as well. And then I thought, because also the fact that he sort of locks his prosthetic into the, the brace to ride toothless and off he goes, but then it's like, but also we can't ride dragons. So (laughs) it becomes a bit absurd when you analyze it too too deeply. (laughs) But, you know, like I also thought he's woken up. He doesn't even seem to have any pain. Um, He's lost his leg. He's been in a battle and he's just like tip top. So even that, um, it just would have made a little bit more sense to to show him at least experiencing some symptoms of the fact that he's been injured from a significant right and even though just even though losing limbs like is very common in this world uh, you would have some emotional attachment to your leg you know and to the fact that you've lost it but it's also great that he's just like "Eh." (laughs) right I don't know anybody who has felt that way when they've lost their leg no yeah (laughs) and then the other thing is that really so my husband talked about (laughs) and he again was like listen cartoons they don't have the same 
sorts of dynamic movement to begin with as human beings. So it's really a, a, a moot point. But as far as the way the prosthetic is his metal prosthesis, which wouldn't even have existed in, in those times, mm-hmm. like the, the dynamic movement of the prosthetic is just like not even realistic at all um, from a prosthetic point of view but I mean it's a very small complaint given you know all the devices that he's making in um these viking times of this fantastical movie I did ask him about peg legs because I was we see peg leg portrayal a lot and so I wanted to know the history of peg legs and Mm -hmm. what he knew about them and he said that peg legs are even still made today and I was like but wouldn't it you know wouldn't people limp really badly and wouldn't it really hurt and could they really be as athletic and as mobile as possible and he said that historically only people who were wealthy could even create a peg leg. Oh, wow. Yeah, because it took a lot of materials. It took a lot of time. And they would use cotton for the socket. They would use leather. It took highly skilled people to learn how to fashion them. And so by the time that they were able to get a prosthetic made, even a peg leg, it really was quite comfortable. And so generally, if you lost a limb, you were either wearing nothing or you had enough resources sources to be able to pay to have this device made. And so, you know, peg legs were quite functional. And yes, your body movement, it would disrupt your body movement. So your the way that you walked would be quite different than before, but you could be quite active once you did have the device. Today, some people do still wear peg legs and they can be quite um, comfortable because it's the socket really that matters as far as the comfort of a device like that. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that ancient Egyptians, there is, um, there's evidence of prosthetic devices that have been dug up by anthropologists in the tombs of ancient Egyptians as well, which I find so fascinating. We didn't get too deep into that conversation. So that was, we got interrupted by our kids. So that was all he was able to get out. But I I find that very fascinating too. Wow, that's really incredible. And it also shows that given the resources have changed so much and technology has changed so much over the years, how functional things they could make things with, you know, mm-hmm. less, I guess, you know, technology and how, yeah, th- that that accommodation was made, you know, so, 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 so long ago. Awesome. So, yeah, it sounds like yeah, there's some obvious gaps, but in terms of, yeah, some accuracies and the fantastical word that we're in, it, we can we can forgive them. For some of them. You can't really complain about inaccuracies when people are riding dragons. Exactly. <laughs> We've kind of touched on this a fair bit in terms of stereotypes because to me this is a movie that very much subverts a lot of stereotypes. But is there anything that you thought did sort of perpetuate a stereotype or a trope in How to Train Your Dragon? Not really. I, from the moment I saw this movie, I was so excited to see the portrayal of people with prosthetics, especially... Mm -hmm. Um, I just loved his athleticism, his humor, creativity and ingenuity, his contribution to society. So I 
really felt very pleased with the kids movie that had such dynamic characters with disability because it's really quite rare. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't really think of any others. And even Gobba as as the character who's sort of the chief's right-hand man and um he's mm-hmm. Hiccup is his apprentice. The fact that he's so positive about uh, it's got sort of, to me, a sense of disability pride almost in that he loves to tell the story of the dragon that ate his limbs and says, like, I must have been tasty because they came back for another one. And um, mm-hmm. and they, I was reading some articles who talk about how he uses, like, those interchangeable prosthetics, which also is kind of used for comedic effect, but it also normalises the concept of prosthetic limbs the fact that he's given such a high position of authority and respect and he it sort of dispels that concept of someone with a disability being sort of in need of pity or or being feeble he's he's got a lot of power he's he's a a teacher he's he's the trainer of the other vikings and the fact that we are already introduced to that theme of disability from the very beginning of the film, I thought was just like already from the get-go, so refreshing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something that I just thought of was, um, tell me the villain's name again. I'm sorry. I can't. Dra- it doesn't Drago? stick in my mind. <laughs> Drago, yes. I really liked that they showed his stump. And you don't see that very often in movies like this. And it was a really real looking portrayal of a of a high upper extremity stump, in my view. I, I like to always, when I talk about my disability and my experience of disability, I should have said this at the beginning. These are my views only. <laughs> they are nobody else's opinions. I am not representing the disabled community. I am representing myself. We put a at the end of every episode. <laughs> Just so okay, you know. good. <laughs> I'm representing myself as a disabled person. So somebody else might have a completely different opinion about this, especially somebody who has upper extremity disability. But from my view, having um, played with a lot of disabled athletes, I I thought it was very great because many of my friends who have disabilities of the upper extremity, they don't wear their prosthetics as frequently as those of us who have lower extremity disabilities. And so you see their stumps more frequently. You know, I often, when kids ask me about my prosthetic, I will say, would you like to see it? Would you like me to take off my prosthetic so you can see it? Because I would like to, as somebody who feels very comfortable with my body in that way, not in all ways, but in that way, I would like to help people to feel comfortable with with being around a different body. And so if I can take off my legs, show them my stump, ask if they want to touch it, then that gives them the opportunity to be around somebody who's very comfortable. So maybe the next time they're around somebody who maybe is less comfortable, they will feel more comfortable. And so just having that, that vision on the screen of a stump, I thought was, was, was another added plus. I wish it wasn't the villain stump though. I wish it was I wish there was more than one. I know. One depiction. Of I know. That. Yeah, that, that that's true. That is true. <laughs> I know. Mm. And I wonder if that was intentional mm. and that might fall under a trope a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That is my thought as well. But yeah, it's, you know, we can forgive it for a few things because of the general view that it's disability isn't a 
bad thing. It doesn't mean you're supposed to be sad or down about it. Um, No one is a villain or a hero because of their disability. And also the themes of eventually integrating, by the end of the first movie, they've completely integrated dragons into their society as almost like they've domesticated them as their pets, but they're Mm -hmm. also learning how to live harmoniously with them and changing their world to make accommodations for the dragons as well. Um, Although I don't love their use of like sheep as, as a ball (laughs) for their games. Um, Right. Exactly. Yeah. You've got to have something, but (laughs) it's also a good example that like, as I was saying, like adjustments in society for any any sort of group that's othered or feared, um, which disability can often fall into that category as, you know, something that people don't know much about so they fear. And same with lots of different marginalised groups and how that mind shift and changing the culture and the community to be accepting and live alongside this group of creatures has been the best, has been a really positive outcome. And not only that, but to see the ways in which they can improve society. So I've heard a lot of talk recently about if we think, for instance, I heard this podcast recently talking about doing trials of accepting disabled people into the NASA space program. And the reason Mm. why they were talking about that is because if you only have able-bodied people in the space program, well, then you don't have people, like for instance, if you have a blind person in the space program, their, their ability to adapt without sight brings something to that space Mm. environment that somebody who has never had to adapt in that way just does not have. Or somebody who wears a prosthetic limb, they might be able to squeeze into a space that somebody who has all of their limbs is not able to squeeze into. And Mm. so thinking outside of the box of like, oh, yes, we're going to open up diversity for diversity's sake and actually saying, no, people who have disability can actually bring something to the table that able-bodied people cannot bring to the table. And that's why we need them included in these spaces. And so the dragons brought that, brought something to the table that, you know, Hiccup says we can go further now than we've ever gone before. And I think that's true when we think about including people with disabilities. We can bring something to the table. We have had experiences that nobody else has had. And we can bring that to the table in a way that somebody who has not had our experiences cannot. And I think that's a beautiful way to describe it and a perfect way to describe Hiccup the character as well, because he wasn't an aggressive strong big viking he was you know his body stature was different from everybody else and i guess we we see later on it's kind of his mother's um trait as well is that he didn't have that um instinct to kill a dragon he he didn't couldn't do it and that actually being seeing as a weakness initially but actually being a strength because it was that ability to empathize and to connect that led the society to thriving by the second movie is also an example of making an adjustment in your classroom that will benefit someone who's disabled in the room can also benefit everybody in the room. That's just, Mm. you know, thinking about it in terms of schooling. Uh, There's a great cartoon that 
I found where oh there was snow on some stairs and a ramp and there's the student in a wheelchair and other students and the man like getting rid of the snow is like oh, I'll just scrape the the stairs and then let all these people in and then I'll scrape the ramp and then the person in the wheelchair is like if you just scrape the ramp we can all get in and that's a really good example of right <laughs> What benefits one benefits all. Right, exactly. Yeah, often when I'm thinking about tools that will help my son who's anxious, neurodivergent, I'm like, this would just help everybody. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Like this would be great practice for everybody. And I wish I had known about it when I was in the classroom. (laughs) I just want to reiterate how athletic Hiccup is even after his disability Um, being a disabled athlete, that was my, and, and all of them, really, all of the Vikings are so athletic. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think people are surprised when I get to introduce people to the Paralympic games, which it's so much easier to do now because they get coverage. Whereas when I, in 2004, when I competed, there was no coverage of the Paralympic games, Mm -hmm. but now there is actual live coverage. So when I get to introduce people they're amazed at the athleticism. And back in 2004, when I competed, I feel like all the coverage was like, just feel good stories and like, look what people have overcome. And there wasn't a lot of talk about the actual sport. Mm -hmm. And now, like even some of my former teammates who have since retired, they go out and broadcast. So there's actual sitting volleyball players who get to broadcast for the major networks, which really helps, you know, legitimize the the coverage. And so I think the idea that they could become disabled, but continue their athletic pursuits is really cool that they're not on the Mm. sidelines that they're continuing to um, do the things that they did before with the adjustments that they need to make to make it possible that is a really really brilliant message nothing has to stop necessarily as as long as there's the support and the adjustments made to access Mm -hmm. that activity I just want to also mention I think there's a good message of connection and community in the disability community in the fact that even though it's, you know, very inaccurate when Hiccup does start using his his prosthetic leg, uh, Toothless actually sort of helps him up and helps support him. Mm. And it's sort of a good example of how having someone who understands that process of having to use a prosthetic and figure out how, to, how it works is really helpful. You know, someone who gets it, it's really good to have that community around you and it can be really, really powerful and make you feel, again, like you're not uh, alone in whatever you're experiencing. Yes. And also, I think having Gobber there, who is kind of Hiccup's, Hiccup is his apprentice, really. Yeah, mentor. Yeah. Not only, he's disabled too. And so he has forged his own prosthetics, Mm. which you know, I think it's pretty uncommon, but I have known prosthetists who have made their own prosthetics. So we'll (laughs) let that one slide too. Um, He's forged his own prosthetic. And so now Hiccup has learned to do that himself. 
and he originally makes his own, uh, I guess Gobber makes him his own prosthetic, but then I think Hiccup in the movie adapts it to what he wants mm. after the fact. And so you see this community as well, where he's able to learn from people who have gone before him. Um, And I think this is so important in the disabled community. Like I talked about when I gave my long-winded introduction to myself and my disability, I didn't really know other disabled people. And then when I finally did, there was this sense of like, uh, oh my gosh, these are my people. Mm, mm. And to this day, when I see somebody with a prosthetic at the gas station and I'm wearing jeans, cause I don't, you know, I do limp, but unless you know, it's like hard to identify what the limp is from. I, I want to tell people me too, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of us. And, um, I think there's just this sense of community within the disabled community and, and by subgroup as well. So those of us who are amputees, we really have this sense of we're in this together. And I think Mm -hmm. if somebody is newly disabled, it's really important to get plugged in and know other people who have had similar experiences to you. And to know who do you go to for prosthetics or how did you get back into the sports you loved or, you know, what do you do when you go to the beach? Those sorts of things that people don't have to think about unless they've been in that situation. Exactly. Um, Which is super empowering and also just, you know, helps you to feel like you belong and there's part of community and there's a place to go to, too. Yeah. Like you just said, access all that information that's really helpful. So yeah, I I really liked that. Before I move on to our last category, which is helpful or harmful, which I think we've figured out mostly that it's very helpful. I, when I was researching, I came across uh, an article that looks at what we call the Fry's test, which is by a disability advocate, Kenny Fry's. Have you heard of Kenny Fry's? No, I don't think so. I had not either, but he has developed a disability representation test in film and it's just like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. In, in 2017, he defined this test through a series of three questions. The first one is, does a work have more than one disabled character? And there's a big tick for this, this movie. Also, what we haven't mentioned is uh, Gothi, um, who is like the spiritual leader who's nonverbal as well. So it was also, it's also good to see a different type of disability in the depiction as well. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. The other question is, do the disabled characters have their own narrative purpose other than the education and profit of a non-disabled character, which is so commonly the case in film where the disabled character is really just there so that the main character can learn something or be better. Which is why I loved this film. Exactly. Hiccup is the main character. It's all about him, his creativity, his bringing everybody else along. I just loved it. Exactly. And every character has their own arc which and different level of power and hierarchy, respectability that's disability not being their defining trait. So yeah, definitely ticks that box. And then the last question is, is the character's disability not eradicated by either curing or killing? Which again, big tick because there's absolutely no question of the disability being eradicated at all but definitely not from either curing or killing it so that's great I love it so lastly I think we've 
find that the film is helpful for sure. I also had a look at some articles of, you know, anyone who particularly felt that it was a powerful um, depiction for them specifically. There was an interview with a um, former army sergeant who was involved in a roadside bomb incident outside Baghdad in 2003. Um, His name was Joe Kashnow and had his half his right leg amputated as a result and he watches this, he's watched this film with his family um his children his oldest who is 12 his youngest who is 8 and they really love how they represent the physical difficulties seeing them overcome their limitations and also the humor that they use and it's been a very special film to their family Um, His older son was able to connect with the character because of what he had seen with his dad. Mm. Both of his sons often comment about the relationship between Hiccup and their dad, which I thought was really sweet as an example of how this film has really been really special for families who see themselves in these characters. Oh, yes. My children all the time are pointing out characters with prosthetic legs and it, it was no exception. In this film. It is just so good to have a hero where someone can see themselves in that hero who has the same disability as that hero. It's it's very it's mm-hmm. very uncommon, um, and it's like just amazing to see that and seeing ourselves more represented in film is always a good thing. And I find it even more important now that I have children. Actually, yes, yes. You know, I didn't feel the need as much when it was just me, but now I want them to see people like me and like themselves in the in the films that they consume. So, hundred um, percent, yeah. I think about it a lot more. Yeah, definitely. I don't think there's a coincidence that I started this podcast while I was pregnant <laughs> because I think that was um, yeah, 100% a, a bit of a light bulb. Like what do I want my kids to be seeing on, t- on TV? Having said that, is there anything that you thought could be seen apart from what we've already discussed, for example, with Drago, anything that we could see as harmful in this film? Or people might see as harmful. Um, no, just the things we've already discussed. That I, I wish there had they had taken a little bit more time to show how hard it can be to mm. overcome a disability. Yeah, I would have liked but, that a bit um, too. Given the time constraints, you know, I can understand why that wasn't portrayed as much. And they did portray it with toothless, just not with hiccups. Yes, that's true. One thing I did think is that maybe some people in the community who like I think we kind of touched on this, but who might not be feeling so positive? Could yes, see the positivity as leaning into that sort of the only disability is a bad attitude kind of um, right concept, yes. um, which we did discuss a little bit earlier too. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it does this, but I'm sure depending on your circumstance, it might not be the film that you want to relate to at that time. Yes, but yeah, I guess that's that's something you could say about it if you if you didn't feel that way inclined. The only other thing that I thought was worth mentioning is that they didn't actually uh, when they created the video game, the How to Train Your Dragon video game, they decided not to have Hiccup's character as an amputee, um, even what? though it was set after the events in the first movie. That's really up disappointing, I think. Yeah. And also a um, person who was reviewing the film who was disabled thought it would be would have been nice if they marketed some branded leather and iron Viking prosthetic limbs, to, uh, given that they market lots of different things with this 
with many um, movie franchises and especially this one, it would have been nice to see some disabled representation in some of that those marketing like mer- merchandise, which is a very fair point as well. Well, I'm sure that my husband could make something <laughs> just like it. We'll give him his details and we'll, we'll send those out so people can do some <laughs> custom orders. <laughs> I can I can see that. Um, also, I I don't know. You know, my kids try to wear my prosthetics all the time and they cannot. It's impossible. So I don't know how you would market that to a really broad audience. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah, but yeah, I think overwhelmingly it's m- far more helpful than than there's harmful things in it and. Just really good to see a really good role model in that disability community. So um, I think we've covered everything. Is there any sort of last messages or anything you just want to share before we wrap up? I um, I know this is different for every person, but I think uh, a lot of times when adults are with their children and their child is curious about a person with a disability, the adult does not always know how to help that child to learn about the disability. And Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking for everyone, of course, again, but I am speaking for myself that I would much rather the adult teach the child how to ask about it just directly and politely than Mm -hmm. to have this awkward situation where I can hear your conversation and I can hear you trying to like distract and redirect your child when they are noticing a body that is different from theirs and they would Mm -hmm. like to know. And most people are happy to just say, I have, even if they don't want to share where their injury came from, they're happy to say, I have a prosthetic leg. And, you know, so I have a whole thing that I say to to children. I ask how many feet they have. They tell me, I tell them how many I have. I ask them if they would like to touch it. They don't have to, of course, but they can if they want. And so, um, I am happy to educate people. Now, not everybody is, and I you can often feel somebody's energy, but it's, you know, I think we have to help children learn how to politely ask instead of yeah. being afraid to acknowledge and notice differences. And so yeah, I would like to give that as my little plug. And you know what? There are going to be times when you ask and the person is not interested mm. in answering, but don't let that deter you from saying, okay, great, my daughter just wanted to know and I'm sorry that we disturbed you that's totally fine and you can walk away uh but it really does not hurt to just make the initial inquiry in a polite way hey we noticed you're in a wheelchair hey we noticed you have a prosthetic my daughter is really interested in it do you mind telling us anything about it is a great way to approach that conversation and then just hear what they have to say if they say no I don't have time or no I'm not interested then okay great thanks so much. And you can walk away. But if they are interested in telling you about it, great, then you and your child have both learned something new that day. That's brilliant. And I think, yeah, everyone's going to be very different in how they might respond to that question. And that doesn't mean, you know, everyone is is having their own individual experiences. But I feel like just generally, that is a really important thing to, yeah, teach your kids that there's no need to be afraid, just ask the question. And and in a respectful way and modeling that to your kids as well because yeah I feel like traditionally society just wants to sort of brush things under the rug that are a little bit different and it's up to us to to shift that mentality as for our kids to sort of continue that on so thank you very much for that yeah really important message and I've noticed that once kids learn about it 
they can move on from it. Yeah. They don't have to keep they're, talking They're about usually it. fine. <laughs> it, it's the same with mm-hmm. queer community and LGBTQI plus issues. That yes. Most kids, once they learn that they, that kid has a mom and a mom, they're, all right. Like, it's really not right. a big deal. It's almost like we just need to kind of see things through kids' eyes. Things are different and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Once that's explained, that's that's all we need to know. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Lo. This has been such an awesome conversation and I'm very excited to keep watching this franchise over and over again. <laughs> so thank you for introducing <laughs> it to me. Yeah, this has been so fun. This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.